Okay, the once and future thing, part two, time warped. I don't know what it is about uh, previously on segments, but I always, I always love seeing previously on segments on the on these shows. It's it's a, it's a simple thing, but it makes them feel more legitimate in a way. I don't know, like like because a lot of hour long dramas uh, do it every week. Uh, when you have a previously on segment before a show, it just sort of gets you really amped up to see the show. And I mean, obviously that's not the main reason why it's there, but it's always a treat when they do that because they only did it a few times in JLU here during the uh, the Cadmus four-parter that ended season four, and then in uh, Destroyer. So in the sequence we're about to go into once the uh, opening credits are over here, we'll be reintroduced to the uh, Joker's gang. That's Joker's with a Z, obviously, from Batman Beyond. Uh, more specifically, the Return of the Joker direct-to-video movie. Uh, people who aren't familiar with that movie and uh, and only know the characters from this episode should note that they were not uh, half robotic in that uh, movie. They've been outfitted by Kronos with these uh, mechanized enhancements here, like Bonk can create a, uh, a sledgehammer out of his hand, and Chekhov's got like that little thing he rolls on, and Woof has got uh, robotic arms and so on. In fact, uh, as I mentioned at the end of the commentary for part one, the the fact that Bonk appeared along with the other Jokers caused a great deal of uh, consternation and guesswork on the part of the fans trying to figure out how this could possibly fit into continuity. Does that mean this, this future sequence will be before Return of the Joker and so on? They had no way of knowing yet that Kronos had futzed with time to the extent that Bonk was still alive. Here there's a reference uh, by the Deities to having killed another Green Lantern, presumably Cairo, the uh, the young Asian Green Lantern that we saw in uh, in The Call, Batman Beyond Two Part of The Call. So while uh, Deedee is still voiced by Melissa Joan Hart, uh, and Chucko is still voiced by Don Harvey, and uh, Ghoul is still voiced by Michael Rosenbaum, of course. Uh, Bonk and Woof have different voice actors. Uh, Bonk is now being voiced by Adam Baldwin, uh, who played Jonah Hex in Part 1, and Woof is now being voiced by D. Bradley Baker, who has sort of replaced Frank Welker as... Uh, well, no one can really replace Frank Welker, but in a lot of uh, cartoons these days, particularly WB-animated uh cartoons, uh, D. Bradley Baker is used for the sort of animal noises and, and growls and sort of monster sounds that uh, the Frank Welker used to be employed for, so um, he seems to be the go-to guy for stuff like that these days, and so uh, perhaps if Frank Welker was unavailable, he was the uh, the logical choice to replace him. Here we've got Static, of course, uh, old Static, more specifically, because in the uh, the present, he's he's only about 16 years old. Hence, uh, John's comment later that when he last saw him, he was too young to drive. Uh, Static was created, co-created, I should say, by Dwayne McDuffie for a now-defunct comic book imprint called Milestone, which was headed up primarily by uh, black creators and uh, attempted to 
uh, create a new bunch of superheroes, uh, superhero properties that were mainly minority characters. Uh, did fairly well for a while. Uh, their biggest success, it has to be said, is is Static, uh, primarily because of the fact that he got his own cartoon series, uh, which ran concurrently with uh, the earlier seasons of Justice League and the, uh, the later seasons of... Uh, the new Batman Superman Adventures and Batman Beyond. Uh, in fact, in his own series, he teamed up with the Justice League for a two-parter. He teamed up with Batman a few times, and he teamed up with Green Lantern once. Uh, hence, again, John's comment later that he knows him and, and knew him when he was younger. And also, uh, there was an episode where Static traveled to the future and met Terry and also saw his future self, who was like a big-time superhero, one of the biggest ever uh, by this point in the future. And so, of course, it makes sense that here, that version of Static, the older version of Static, is a member of the Justice League, or what remains of the Justice League uh, in Kronos's altered future. Static is voiced by Phil Lamar, as he was in his own series. There, Phil Lamar was doing a very young-sounding voice. Here, he's got to make Static sound older, but still can't make him sound the same as Green Lantern, who... Phil Lamar, of course, also plays. Uh, what Phil Lamar ends up doing is coming up with a voice that I feel is a bit too close to the voice he does for Steel. Uh, and so that sort of prevents me from really getting into his portrayal of, of the old static here, and in turn uh, getting into his portrayal of Steel. But that's a minor thing. Uh, Phil Lamar is an excellent actor, and the fact that he can do so many different voices is fantastic, and the fact that two of them are kind of similar is not a big deal. Uh, Joaquim Dos Santos, the director for this episode, said that he took all the uh, the sequences with the three Batman, like we have here, and storyboarded them himself, uh, which is not normally a director's job, uh, because he just thought it was the coolest thing ever to have uh, old Bruce, young Bruce, and Terry all in the same shot together. Earlier in the battle, it's it's uh, during the battle that I just talked over, it's worth noticing that uh, Terry employs a boom tube uh, as the JLU's escape route. Uh, it was established in the call that once Barda joined the Justice League, that the boom tube sort of became their primary mode of transportation. And here, although Barda is not in this episode, presumably she was killed, along with a lot of the other leaguers, that boom tubes are still the the main way to go. Certainly better than the transporters, which seem to be on the blink every other episode. Warhawk also introduces himself as Rex Stewart, presumably um, named by John for his uh, old friend Rex Mason, a.k.a. Metamorpho, who we saw in Metamorphosis he had a, a long history with and had been friends with for a very long time. So even though that relationship wasn't... Uh, wasn't brought up very often, presumably. That's where the uh, the Rex and Rex Stewart comes from. It might make more sense to be like uh, Wallace Stewart or something like that, perhaps named for the Flash, but maybe he and Flash don't really have that kind of friendship. I like how they took the Kronos costume from the comics, which was really, really silly looking, and kind of redesigned it so that it looks kind of regal. Um, I don't know. It's it's not even changed that much. Uh, they have just, just by putting a single stripe down the pants as opposed to many stripes and 
getting rid of the cape and and adding the little thing around the collar there and the white on his on his uh part of the costume on his head there now kind of looks like it's going around like a crown almost and it's it's a big improvement the one in the comics was pretty goofy looking if only because of the red and white striped pants Warhawk, of course, uh, talking about stuff which has already happened again, but can't really be helped. Uh, Warhawk was, of course, created specifically for the call, um, the Batman Beyond two-parter that, for all intents and purposes, ended that series. Although, uh, scheduling vagaries aside, uh, Unmasked was really the season finale, but the call, really, thematically speaking, it serves as a better finale. And so that's the way I think of it. But Warhawk was introduced in the call, created specifically for that by Bruce Timm and the others. He's not, he's not a character from the comics. In that episode, he was just sort of a Hawk-type character. Some people thought he might be, you know, a Hawkman's son or something like that. But of course, since Batman Beyond uh, was produced before Justice League, the creators had no idea they were going to even use a version of Jon Stewart or Shire or Hall in their animated universe. And so revealing the identities of Warhawk's parents to be John Stewart and Shira Hall is a complete retcon in the sense that he was just created to be a Hawk-type character. If they'd known in advance he was going to be their son, they might have given him, for, for instance, a darker skin tone or something. But uh, you can sort of fan-wank that after the fact by saying that because John and Shire are of two different races, uh, genetically speaking, things might not, might not homogenize quite as much as they would... Uh, were two humans to produce an offspring. In this case, it would seem that uh, Shaira's skin tone prevailed over Jean, uh, John's, and he ended up basically Caucasian. Uh, but John's no-wings gene tended to, it would appear, trumped Shaira's having wings gene to the extent that Warhawk now looks pretty much like a Caucasian human. When you've got two aliens producing offspring, you can really make up whatever rules you want. Cronus is so is great here. It's worth noting that uh, when Bonk says earlier in this scene, the JLU showed up, they got in our way, only the Future League is ever referred to in the context of the show as the JLU. They, that's what they were called in the call, and so when it came time to rebrand the Justice League series for the third season, they said, hey, since we're expanding the League, why don't we tie it into Batman Beyond by adding the Unlimited, which is what the Future League called themselves. But all throughout the, uh, the three seasons of Justice League Unlimited, the present team is never referred to as the JLU. That's just, with the, name, that's just the name of the show. The Future League, however, is called the JLU. That's a mistake that a lot of people make when they refer to the present team as the JLU. Although you can do that as sort of a, a shorthand, it's not technically correct. A lot of people complain that the fact that Batman, I, I should be more specific, the fact that the young Bruce Wayne Batman here retains his memories of this adventure poses problems for the Batman Beyond pilot Rebirth when he clearly had no idea who Terry was. If he's met Terry here as Batman, wouldn't he know when he meets Terry out in front of Wayne Manor in Rebirth Part 1 that this is the kid that's destined to become the second Batman, and why does he give him such a hard time? Well, quite intentionally, they never had Terry referred to by name 
in front of young Bruce, nor did Terry ever remove his mask. So all young Bruce knows coming out of this two-parter is that in this altered future, there was a, a young kid who became the second Batman. Even if he assumes that that much is true in the unaltered real future, he still doesn't know who this kid is going to be. And so when Terry shows up in, in Rebirth Part 1, Bruce has no way of knowing that he's the kid. When he steals the Batsuit later on in Rebirth, he might either think that um, this young punk kid is stealing the suit that he's supposed to give to the real guy someday, or at that point he might clue in on the fact that this is the guy, but so much time having passed between now and then and old Bruce becoming so crotchety, he gives him a hard time anyway. But either way, it still works. I, I prefer to think that uh, Bruce sort of dismisses a lot of this as being a possible future. He's not the kind that would buy into predestination. He's very much of the mindset that one man can make a difference and can change the world. Otherwise, why would Batman do what he does? And even if he does buy into it as the future, he still has no way of knowing that the second Batman is going to be Terry McGinnis. Here, Michael Rosenbaum's voice for Ghoul sort of becomes less of a Christopher Walken impersonation as it was in Return of the Joker and sort of becomes more of a, a generic uh, accent of that same sort of regional accent, but not quite a, a take on Christopher Walken. It must have been fun to to watch Kevin Conroy uh, deliver his lines for this episode, going back and forth between uh, old Bruce and young Bruce. I mean, there have been other uh, other productions, notably Return of the Joker and uh, the Batman Beyond episode out of the past, where he's had to do both voices, but this is the first time he's had to switch back and forth in a single scene, and it must have been fun to watch him deliver those lines. Now the henchman guarding Enid here, I guess it's a robot, based on the way that sparks come out of it when the League uh, beats it up later. It looks kind of like a jokerized bodybuilder, but why would it be a robot? That I, I don't really know how that's supposed to work, but anyway. If, the, <laughs> if Kronos is going to make a robot to guard his wife, why would he make it look like the Joker? I don't really understand what, how that's supposed to work, but anyway. Any Joker reference they can sneak in there is fine by me. JLU theme there. And, da-da-da-da, Hal Jordan. A very, uh, a design very respectful to his, uh, his comics look. Basically the same exact look. He looks like he stepped right out of one of the Neil Adams illustrated comics of the 70s with the slightly longer hair and so on. Now, Hal Jordan, if my ear is correct, and I think I've developed quite an ear for these things over the years, seems to be voiced also by Adam Baldwin. Um, I suppose the idea here is that an alternate, in an alternate timeline, which because of Kronos's interference is now merging with this one, Hal got the Green Lantern ring instead of John, I suppose is the idea. Uh, we know that in our reality, he's... Uh, He's a colonel in the Air Force, uh, as we see on the side of a jet in the Superman episode in Brightest Day. Perhaps uh, 
John just happened to be closer, as is the, as was the case in the comics. Um, when uh, Hal Jordan got his ring, there was another Earthman, Guy Gardner, who was deemed by the ring to be equally worthy, but was simply farther away, and so it, it went to Hal. Uh, perhaps in this altered reality where Hal got the ring in the DCAU, uh, he was on a different flight path or something on his in his jet, or... or uh, a mission was scrubbed or something, and so he stayed at the base and, and ended up being closer than John uh, to where Ab- to where uh, whoever, not Evan Sir, I guess, but whoever passed his ring on to John uh, died. I don't know, but uh, that seems to be the idea. It's it's you're really not supposed to think about it that much either. It's just supposed to be fun to see Hal Jordan, and of course it is. I love that Chrono sleeps in the. Um, in the Old West jail. The idea, of course, being that the only time in his life, or, you know, in his recent adult life, that he got a good night's sleep was the uh, the period of time when he was away from his wife, and despite the horrible, squalid conditions of this jail, it's, he still slept like a baby because he didn't have his wife nearby, and so if he could choose anywhere to sleep, that would be it. I love this end battle here. It really has this sort of apocalyptic feel to it. And the whole thing kind of has a Crisis on Infinite Earths feel to it as well, with the uh, the white wave of nothingness passing through and disintegrating everything, and the different times merging with dinosaurs and colonial riflemen and all these other things appearing out of out of thin air. Uh, a lot of that stuff also happened in Crisis on Infinite Earths, with the, uh, the antimatter wave destroying all the parallel Earths and uh, timelines merging and all this stuff. So this is, for all intents and purposes, I suppose, the DCAU version of the crisis. So, of course, uh, here in a second, Static is about to die. He's going to be pulled down into that white wave. And in a couple, uh, couple seconds, we're also going to see Terry die, and I'll talk about that as it happens, but... Of course, since this is only an alternate future, which is prevented... Um, hold on. When I say fire at will, I wonder if that was supposed to be a, a pun, given that Terry is voiced by uh, Will Friedle. But uh, Terry and Static's deaths, of course, never ended up happening, because this is a possible future that was averted. A lot of people didn't get that at the time. I love Kevin Conroy's performance here as Terry dies, when he screams Terry's name and then says it again, quietly just the just the agony in his voice the second time he says it the one this this young kid this great young kid that came into his life i'm going to tear up even as i'm talking about it watch watch this happen um this young kid that came into his life when he had nothing and gave him meaning gave his life meaning again and 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 as we of course find out later in epilogue it's his son and if this uh, the Bruce Wayne of this timeline, in fact, knows that Terry is his son. That adds further poignancy to that performance because he's lost everything. Terry is everything to him. He's he's the mission and he's his family. And to lose both of those things in an instant with everything else going to hell, it's it's just such a such a heartrending moment. And Kevin Conroy can sell those like nobody's business. Warhawk is played a little differently in this episode. He's, he comes off a lot softer than he did in The Call, where he was basically a, a jerk for all intents and purposes. He was uh, 
you know, I guess you could say in the call, it seemed like he got the the worst parts of both of his parents' personalities. He had uh, Shaira's aggressiveness and John's early season one uh, gruff, no-nonsense abrasiveness. But here he seems a lot more well-rounded as a person. No doubt to make it seem like uh, John's son isn't a complete jerk, which would have uh, interfered with the thematically with what they were trying to do with the episode, so they toned him down, toned his attitude down a bit. The bit here uh, where John says it's forbidden for anyone to see the beginning of time, according to the Guardians, it's a universal law, and here we see the hand of God. For I mean, whether you believe in God or not, this is what this is supposed to be, the, the hand of some creator deity, whether it's the Judeo-Christian God or what, it's supposed to be the, the hand of the omnipotent being that created the universe. The reason why the Guardians have a rule, Green Lantern theme, the reason why the Guardians have a rule against anyone seeing the beginning of time is because in a, a story that was told uh, a couple of decades ago, it turned out that a Guardian, although I don't think they called themselves Guardians at the time, a Malthusian named Crona conducted a dangerous experiment to see the beginning of time, and when he succeeded the experiment ended up unleashing evil into the universe and split it into the multiverse, when, in fact, one universe was supposed to be born at the beginning of time. That was shattered, and many universes were born. This led to all sorts of instability. And, and like I said, moreover, it, his, this experiment see, and the results, seeing the beginning, of the, time, the beginning of time, unleashed evil into the universe. And so the, all the Guardian's efforts to promote peace and order is sort of their way of atoning for this one Guardian's... Uh, acts, for, for Krona's acts. And so that's the reason why the Guardians have a rule against uh, seeing the beginning of time. Here in the background behind John, Booster sitting with uh, Gypsy Stargirl and Supergirl, and they're all smiling impishly. It seems like Booster's got, it really looks like Booster's got his own little harem going on behind there. And here, uh, lastly, I'll do my best to explain this in the time remaining, uh, Dwayne McDuffie said this regarding the final scene. Batman did not know what conversation he was dropping Kronos into. That was a complaint that some people had. How would Batman know he was going to be imprisoning Kronos in this personal hell? Well, he didn't. All Batman was trying to do is just repeat the last few seconds before Kronos traveled back in time to the Watchtower. It just happened that in those few seconds he was being berated by his shrew of a wife. Uh, all Batman was, all that Batman was trying to do by having Kronos repeat those last few pre-time travel seconds was to minimize damage to the timeline without actually having to kill Kronos. If Batman had just dumped Kronos back in his own time, lickety-split, Kronos could have just built another belt and done the whole thing over again, this time with foreknowledge of what Batman would have done. So that was the only way to stop it. Thanks for listening.